How was everybody? Good, 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 good. So, um, something kind of bittersweet. Uh, Josh Jamerson that was right behind me, this is his last service with us, um, which is sad uh, because I love him. He's a really good friend of mine. Um, but he is leaving here. He is planting a church, and they're starting their soft launch next weekend in Antioch, right off Bell Road. So he's starting Crossland Church. Yeah, that's good. And um, this church is going to support them, and I'll still meet with him every single Monday. And he calls me Bishop, which makes me extremely uncomfortable but, and weird. But uh, anyways, so um, yeah, be praying for him. Uh, fun story about Josh. So, so I, I've been saying at all the services, it's his last weekend here. Make sure you go hug him, you know, wrap your arms around him. He likes being touched by people. So um, just, just, you know, go do that. And it's funny, he's actually probably the cleanest, most germaphobic man I've, I've ever been around. And last year I had the pleasure <laughs> of staying with him for 10 days in East Africa. And it is really fun to take a germaphobe to a third world country. That's, <laughs> that's a good time. And um, he's pretty particular about the food he eats. And one day we were out on an island in the middle of Lake Victoria, which is not the cleanest lake in the world. And uh, what happens is when you're out during the day and you're going kind of from, from home to home, which are just you know, mostly mud huts, and you're telling people about Jesus, what few Christians may be on the island, you come back and they serve you lunch. And it's very insulting in Africa to not eat what's put in front of you. So whatever's put in front of you, you eat. And Josh, being a, kind of a clean freak, they went and caught some fish. I don't know what kind of fish they were. They, they, they call them tilapia. It's not tilapia. But uh, they bring these fish, and it's a whole fish, and they just kind of fry it up, and they make this kind of sauce out of what Jamerson calls the fish juice, and you're supposed to pour it on the fish, and you just kind of dig into this fish with your hands, and there was nothing more satisfying than watching Josh <laughs> dig into this fish from this dirty lake with fish juice on it and him eating that because he didn't want to be offensive. And I was just kind of in the corner, just like smiling, kind of looking at him. I'm like, Josh, how's that, how's that fish you're eating there? Is that good? Yeah, it's good. So all that to be said, just, just, just put your hands on Josh today before he leaves. So, okay, so we've been <laughs> in an appropriate manner, right? No, I'm not going to go into it. Anyway, so we are in the book of Matthew. We've been working through this for a couple of weeks now. We're in chapter three today. And if you have not been here, the first two chapters of Matthew, I would dare say virtually everyone in this room has heard in some form or fashion. It's the nativity story. It's the birth of Jesus. Um, we kind of see this, this kind of snapshot or distant view of the first two years of Jesus's life. And again, even if you're not a Christian in here, you're, you're probably relatively familiar with that Christmas story, nativity story. That's the first two chapters. What we talked about last week, though, when we ended chapter two, we brought up a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a philosopher, who was famous for his phrase, God is dead. And that's taken way out of context. He didn't mean it necessarily in a, in a disrespectful way to God, but he was proposing the question, if we kill God in our culture or remove God from society, he said that horrible things are going to happen. And he was right, right? The 20th century was a very terrible century in a lot of ways. And so we asked ourselves the question last week, do we understand how dependent that we need to be on something bigger than us? This week, we're going to talk about this. We're going to do chapter three. We're going to talk about a guy named John the Baptist. At the very tail end of this chapter, Jesus kind of comes into the picture. And something very uh, uh, provocative is said by God to Jesus at the end of chapter three. 
And he's talking about his dearly beloved son that he's proud of. And so what we're gonna ask ourselves today, very, very simplistic, right? We're gonna ask ourselves, do we understand how God looks at us? Do we understand what God thinks about us and how he sees us, right? Do we understand our true identity? That's what we're gonna talk about a little bit today. So if you came in any one of the, uh, the kind of big entrances into the sanctuary, you should have got a notes handout. Has pretty much everything I'm gonna say is in there. Everything should be on the screens. If you have a smartphone, if you have the Experience Community app, click on service times, sermon notes, and everything should be there, scripture and notes. So we should have everything ready to go. If you have a Bible, physical copy, we're in the New Testament, maybe about 65% through the Bible, the book of Matthew, we're in the third chapter. And so I'm gonna pray. We'll read a little bit. We'll get through it relatively quick. It's a short chapter. And um, I hear there's sunshine out there, so that's, that's encouraging. I, I wanna go feel some of that. So we'll get out of here and we can go do that, all right? Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Lord, thank you, God, for that last song. Lord, to be reminded that you are the promise keeper, Lord, that you are good. God, sometimes we just need reminding of who you are and how amazing you are to us. Thank you for that. Lord God, I pray for this church today. Lord, for everyone in this room right now, Lord, that you would keep your hand on us, God, that we would learn something today, that, that this group would be edified and, and encouraged. We pray not just for our church, Lord. We pray for every church in our community, God. Um, we pray for the churches that we work with up in New England. We pray for the churches we work with in other nations, God. We pray for the wonderful nonprofits that we work with, God, specifically special kids that we're working with this month that you would bless what they do, God, and all the good work they do in our community. And I pray that you would keep your hand on us, Lord, that everything we do, that it honors you today and makes you proud, God. Father, um, let us understand just a little bit of how you see us today. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. We pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in chapter three. This is Matthew writing. He was one of the 12 disciples. I'm gonna read a little bit, and I'll go back and break it down, okay? It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make his paths straight. Now, if you were here last week, we, we finished chapter two talking about a two-year-old baby Jesus, right? And if your mind went to Talladega Nights, you need to repent, you're awful. So <laughs> at the end of chapter two, we were reminded of two-year-old baby Jesus. And then in chapter three, we're now going to be introduced to a 30-year-old Jesus at the end of this, this chapter. So where in the heck did 28 years go? So here's the thing. We know quite a bit about Jesus' birth. We know very, very little about Jesus' childhood and his adolescent years. The most clarity that we get about Jesus' childhood and his upbringing is it says in the book of Luke in chapter 2 that he was obedient to his parents and that he uh, increased in wisdom and he increased in stature with God and with other people. That's virtually all we know about his childhood and his adolescent years. Now, to the inquisitive person, that, that almost introduces more questions than it gives us answers. So what we do know is this. We know that from birth, Jesus was 100% God. But the question arises, when did he know that? When did Jesus know that? 
Now, we also know that from Scripture that at a very young age, preteen age, we get this snapshot of Jesus when he was still a child, and he had wandered away from his parents in the city, and when they eventually found him, he was in the temple, he was in the synagogue. And so what he was doing as a child is he was schooling the teachers in what they were trained to teach. These would have been the PhD level scholars, right, of this day and age. And you had this little boy sitting in the temple telling them what the scripture really meant and interpreting it better than them. Well, how could he do that? He could do that because he was the real author of the scripture. He was God incarnate. So we know that at a young age, he understood his identity. He understood his purpose. Exactly when? We don't know, but at a young age. So now we move on to this other very, very interesting character, a guy named John the Baptist. John's ministry was very short. It didn't last for a very, very long time. He kind of came out of nowhere. He was out in the wilderness. He looked kind of weird. He, he talked kind of weird. He's very different. And he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the last great prophet. And God had not given any kind of new word or prophecy to humanity in over 400 years. And the first kind of loud prophetic voice that the people would hear would be this guy, John the Baptist. So John was a miracle child. He was born from older parents who his father was in the priesthood. His mother was too old, most naturally, to, to, give, uh, to give birth to children. So he was kind of a miracle baby. He was also a biological cousin to Jesus and probably about a six-month difference between the two. But these two would have been kind of raised knowing each other, Jesus and John. And what John's message was, was a message of change. What had happened was, is the nation as a whole, Israel, was out of step with God. And because the people of a nation were out of step with God, society was not functioning properly. Culture was not functioning properly. So the people as a whole needed to change. But unless they confessed that they were doing something wrong, unless they had a desire to change, change was never going to take place. So John was sent by God to initiate the change, to get the ball rolling, if you will. But what had happened is this. Listen to how familiar this sounds. The people of God had gotten so comfortable in the world and so close to worldly things that their spiritual eyes had become blind. So they couldn't distinguish what was right and wrong what was of God and what wasn't of God, and they needed a prophet and eventually a savior to show them what was wrong. So John came to teach two things, two things, okay? The first thing he came to teach was repentance. Now, when we hear repentance, we often think, well, that means just asking for forgiveness. And that's a part of, or of repentance, but not the whole of it. Yes, we are to ask God and sometimes others to forgive us, that's repentance, but repentance is also a lifestyle change. It's changing how we think. It's changing what we do. So he came to teach a lifestyle change. He also came to teach that the kingdom of God was getting closer. Now, what does that mean? It meant two things. John meant the kingdom of God was literally going to be closer because Jesus was about to show up on the scene. So literally, the kingdom of God is going to be walking among us. They're going to be able to touch him, see him, listen to him talk. The other thing that he meant was because of John's message and because of the coming message of Jesus, the kingdom of God, heaven, is going, is going to get closer to us. 
which means the more the gospel spread around the earth, Jesus said once the, once the gospel has spread around the entire earth and everyone has had the opportunity to hear it, Jesus says in the book of Matthew that that's when he's going to come back. What that means is every single day when a new person hears the gospel, every single day when a missionary goes to another place where the gospel has not been taught, we are one day closer to Jesus coming back. We are one day closer to the kingdom coming, if you will, okay? That's what John meant. Now, what is the kingdom and how is that shown to us? Jesus is gonna talk a lot about the kingdom in the book of Matthew. We're gonna learn a lot about the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is revealed to us, to humanity, in three different ways over a different span of time. The first way that the kingdom of God was revealed to us was through Jesus' coming. Jesus comes and oftentimes he says, the kingdom of God is like this. And he teaches us a parable and he, he shows us how to live and he models for us how to live and how to be close to our, our heavenly father. So the kingdom of God is revealed in Jesus in the flesh. The second way that the kingdom of God is revealed to humanity is by God giving us his spirit. So after Jesus was crucified, he ascends into heaven. He says, I'm gonna send my Holy Spirit. That happens in the second chapter of Acts. And from then on out, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Ephesians 1.13 says we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And the kingdom is revealed to us because the fruit of the Holy Spirit starts to come out in our lives, or at least it should. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are, are being used by the people who have the Holy Spirit. And we see evidence of God working, right? The kingdom of God is revealed through the Holy Spirit. And then the last way the kingdom of God is going to be revealed is one day it is literally gonna come back. Jesus will return and he will judge mankind and we will go to be in an eternity with him in the kingdom or we will be eternally separated from the kingdom. Now the signs of God working, the signs of the kingdom of God, are, are, they're there. Anyone can see them if you want to see them. We can have the Holy Spirit. We can celebrate Jesus' life and his example, but we have to want to do those things. We can be ready when God comes back for his people, but we have to ask ourselves, are we watching? Are we listening? Are we reading? Are we paying attention? Because the signs are all around us. So what John the Baptist essentially came to do was to come and offer us a choice. He was a messenger. John said to the people, lay down your arrogance and pick up humility. He would say, lay down your selfishness for the greater good of the kingdom of God and for the greater good of those around you. John essentially said, lay down yourself. And if you lay down yourself, you will find your true God. The message of repentance does this. It leads us to give up our kingdom for a greater kingdom. It leads us to give up our imperfection and our mistakes and exchange them for God's perfection, for his righteousness, for his holiness, for his goodness. That's what John came to offer and set the way for Jesus to come in, okay? Now, John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, 
Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. I actually highlighted that. Rarely highlight my Bible. I did chapter uh, verse eight right there. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from these stones. The ax is already at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into a fire. So John was a major attraction, right? Not just because he could accessorize. said he had a belt with that camel skin outfit he had on. Not just because he had this interesting diet, right? The guy out in the wilderness eating the bugs with honey. That's not what the big attraction was. It wasn't his clothes. It wasn't his wild diet and his crazy looks. It was his message. He delivered a message that was powerful and it was clear and it was right from the Holy Spirit. They estimate, theologians estimate that somewhere in the neighborhood of over 100,000 people were baptized in just a couple of months by John the Baptist. What we see is this. Listen to me real carefully in here. I wish a lot of preachers would hear me say this, but most preachers don't listen to anyone except for themselves. Um, what I wish I could say to a lot of pastors is this. It's not how cool you look. It's not how great the band sound. It's not about the catchy sermon title you come up with. If you're teaching the word of God, it will draw people in and it will change people's lives. I'd like to say that to pastors. I'd like to say this to you guys. We're so worried about offending people around us that we water down the gospel. And when we water down the gospel, a watered down gospel does not save and it does not change lives. So here's what I've found in this church. If we will stick to God's word, we cannot improve on this word. If we will just stick to this word, the people that God wants to draw, they will be drawn to him and it will absolutely flip their lives upside down. I had a man come to me, this was about seven years ago. Our church was running 300 people at that time. We run about 5,500 right now. He came to me after a service and I taught for 50 minutes. I think it was straight, I was teaching through the book of uh, maybe Genesis at that time. He came up to me and he said this, and he was a nice guy, but he said, Corey, this church will never grow if you don't shorten your lessons down to 30 minutes and do some catchy sermon series instead of just teaching straight from the Bible like that. A pastor told me that. I said, man, watch it, watch it. It's not because of me, it's because this word holds power. And if we will share the truth with people, people will be drawn to it. And again, it will change their lives. We need to teach a clear message. We don't need to water it down or make it anything else, right? So John was out in the wilderness baptizing people all the time, day in, day out, baptizing people. Now, baptism is not something that Jews did. Jews didn't get baptized. What Jews did is if someone wanted to come into Judaism, their faith, they would baptize non-Jews into Judaism. It was like a ritual cleansing, but they didn't go through it. So the point that John was doing was he was, he was, he was trying to teach them that just how you baptize the Gentiles into Judaism, we're all gonna be baptized into God's family, into Jesus's family. So John's baptism was a, a turning away from sin. It was also turning away from the mindset that just because you were born into a, a people that believed in God doesn't mean you're saved. The Jews thought just because they were Jews, they were okay. Just like a lot of us think, well, I was born into a Christian family, I'm okay. No, 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 we have to live for Christ. We have to have a lifestyle of Christ. We have to repent for our sin. So John set the stage for all of us 
to be adopted into the family of Jesus Christ. That's what his baptism was doing. But like any group of people, especially a large group of people, not all the people who showed up were sincere, right? There was these two different groups of people that showed up, and these are kind of the bad guys of the Gospels, right? The antagonists. Not all of them. We're going to find out there was actually some good Pharisees and Sadducees, but the majority of them were pretty bad. These were the religious slash politicians of the age. They ran the Jewish courts. They were the, there was the hyper-conservative uh, hyper base, which was the Pharisees. There was the hyper-liberal base, which was the Sadducees. Of course, they didn't get, all of this sounds oddly familiar. They didn't get along. They didn't really care about the people. They were looking out for themselves. They were politicians. And so when they showed up, John knew that they weren't there for the right reasons. They were there just to see where all the action was and to maybe get some votes in the next election, right? That's why they showed up. And so John greets them in a way that we should probably never greet a politician. He says, hey, snakes, right? <laughs> we want to, but we probably shouldn't. He said, brood of vipers. And the reason he said that is God wanted him to say that. Why? The reason why John greets these hypocrites like that, right? These kind of elitist, think they're better than everyone else people. As he says, you brood of vipers. He said that for two reasons. One, he was saying to all the people who were watching this, stay away from them. They don't care for you. They don't love you. They're not looking out for you. They're just looking out for themselves. They're snakes. Stay away from them. The second reason why he called them snakes in front of everyone, which will eventually have him killed, by the way, for acting like this. John looks at them and he calls them out for their sake. Basically telling them, you're not going to escape God's judgment just because you're powerful, just because you're rich, just because you're a politician. You're going to be held into account as well. So he calls them out as well, hoping to get their attention. Do you know what we learn from this? We learn that God loves the people who have been abused. God also loves the abuser. We have a hard time with that, don't we? But God also wants to save the people who have done the violation. He also wants to save the people who have done the evil action. Guys, I dare say all of us in this room have been the violator at one time or another, haven't we? And God has been gracious to save us, right? He wants to save the victim, and he also wants to save the assailant, right? The one that has done something wrong. And so I mark this part in my Bible because it jumps out at me. John tells these Pharisees as they walk, walk up, after he calls them a brood of vipers, he says, produce fruit that is consistent with repentance. All that simply means is he says, act the way you say you are. You say you're spiritual men, act like spiritual men. Do spiritual things. And it says to us that if we're gonna walk around saying that we're followers of Jesus, we better do what Jesus tells us to do. We better have a relationship with Jesus. All throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew uh, uh, records these very simple analogies that Jesus uses. A lot of them uh, 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 agricultural analogies. And so Jesus, one of the very simple things he says is he says, a tree will be known by its fruit. If you walk up to a tree and it has a sign that says apple tree, but there's oranges coming off the branches, it's not an apple tree. It's an, it's an orange tree. That's the fruit it produces. That's what it is. We can walk around all day long saying we're Christians, but if we do not produce the fruit of living after Jesus Christ, we are not Christians. James, the brother of Jesus, said it this way. We cannot possibly have faith without doing good works. I know we're not saved by doing good works. We're saved by grace. But once we acknowledge that we're saved by grace, we're to produce good fruit. And James says that faith without works is dead. 
It's not real faith at all. So it's not just what we proclaim to be. It's how we live our lives, produce fruit consistent with repentance, okay? John, uh, uh, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chafe or the chaff, he will burn with fire that never goes out. Side note, I find it remarkable when Christians tell me there's not a literal hell and there has been two references to a literal hell just in the two parts that I've just read to you. It's interesting. So what John was saying is, I'm setting the stage for Jesus to come and draw the lines. John came to baptize with water, with repentance. But he said, Jesus is gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What the Holy Spirit does is when we give our life to Jesus Christ, again, Ephesians 1.13, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. God knows that we cannot live the way we're supposed to live without help. So when we give our life to Jesus, when we're obedient to him, he gives us the Holy Spirit and that allows us to live the way that God wants us to live. And if we have the Holy Spirit and if we're living the way God wants us to live, we will not suffer the fire that he's talking about here. And that fire is of judgment when Jesus comes back. So Jesus makes the lines clear. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I don't want you to do. I know you can't do it alone. So God sends his Holy Spirit to be with us, to help us until we die or until he comes back for us. We have help. The Spirit also balances us. What that means is the Holy Spirit teaches us and shows us grace and love. But the mention of fire also reminds us that God is a righteous judge. So the narrative right now in our culture, in our Christian culture, is God is love, right? God is love, the Bible says that. The problem is, is we don't know what the heck love means anymore. We often say in our culture, love has no boundaries. There are no lines to love. Love does whatever it wants to do, goes wherever it wants to go, and that's not biblical love. It's not even practical love. Let me give you an example. There's an organization of men in this nation right now called NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association. Some of your congressmen are actually affiliated with it. It's been around since the 1960s, and it's a group of old, creepy, disgusting men who are trying to pass legislation so they can have sex with prepubescent boys. NAMBLA, North American Man-Boy Love Association. Been around since the 1960s. But hey, love has no lines, right? Of course it has lines. But who defines those lines? God is love. If he is the embodiment of pure, of pure love, he's the one that defines those lines. Does love, has, does love have lines? Absolutely it does. God is perfect love, but there cannot be perfect love without perfect justice. Because evil has to be held accountable. And what we often, what we often say is that the sins that I commit, I do these things and, and yes, maybe they're sins that I've committed, but they don't hurt anyone else. And sin always hurts someone else. Men, when you bring that porn into your home, it's going to affect your children. It's gonna affect your marriage. Well, Corey, I'm a single guy. I look at porn every once in a while. I don't hurt anyone. Really, it's a 60% suicide rate with women who stay in the porn industry. Tell it to their families, right? So when you get online and look at that crap, 
You're perpetuating an evil that is almost unfathomable. It is horrible. It's not a victimless thing to look at porn. It's not a victimless thing to lust and degrade men and degrade women. It's not a victimless thing to steal and lie and cheat. And these things are gonna be held accountable by God. Because he is perfect love, he also has to be perfectly just. He is a righteous judge as well. Now for the Christian in here, that shouldn't scare you. It shouldn't, it shouldn't bother you that we, we serve a righteous judge. Listen, we're gonna face ridicule in this life. We may even face uh, persecution in this life. But if we are following Jesus, we're not gonna face God's wrath in this life. We're not gonna face God's wrath in eternity or an eternal separation from him. Matthew 10, 28 says this. Jesus' followers were terrified. They knew that they were about to go out because Jesus said, I'm gonna send you out like sheep among wolves, right? Well, that's kind of scary. Wolves devour sheep. And so Jesus turned around to his disciples and said, listen, don't fear those that can hurt your body. Don't be afraid of them. Fear the one that can cast both soul and body into hell. Do you know who he was talking about? He was talking about himself. He said, don't be afraid of being on the wrong side of people. Be afraid about being on the wrong side of God. So if we are walking with God, if we are walking with God, we have nothing to be afraid of. Listen, can I pause here for a second? And I'm gonna sound like a jerk. Can I pause? If, if people walk out of this room because they bring their children into this room, this is why we have different areas for kids to get plugged in because we're gonna talk like adults in this room and I'm gonna talk about things like porn because about 60% of you in this room have probably struggled with it, okay? So listen, if you come into this place and you just kind of want like this like feel good, we're not gonna talk about real issues thing. Um, there's other churches in town that may be a better fit. And, and hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't, don't applaud for me right now. The other thing is, is we have children's churches, we have middle school, we have things that teach the same scripture, but on a level that's a little bit more appropriate. So one time I got an email from a woman who said, you talked about porn and service, and my five-year-old didn't know what that was. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, your five-year-old's not necessarily supposed to be in here because we're gonna talk about adult things. And so a lot of people struggle with porn, so we're gonna, we're gonna talk about things like porn. And so I just, I wanna encourage you guys, we're, we're real in here, and we're gonna talk about real things. And if you don't want your children hearing about that stuff, man, we have a fantastic children's department on the other side of the building and right behind me. So let me, let me move on. I'm so sorry. Last part. I'll seriously get emails. Corey, how dare you talk about these things? I dare because your husband's struggling with it. That's why I dare. I dare because your marriage is falling apart. That's why I dare. I dare because the Bible brings up the darkest parts of the chambers of our heart and we need to address it or, or we're, not gonna, we're not gonna move past it. We're not gonna be delivered from it. Do we want the real unabashed Jesus or do, do you guys just wanna hear stuff that is soft and cuddly? And if you want that, you can tune into Stephen Furtick or someone else. That's not the way I teach, okay? I, sorry. Sorry, let me, let me finish up, sorry. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way it has to be for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened up for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus was quiet his first 29 years of his life, very passive. But at age 30, passive went right out the window. So at age 30, Jesus was baptized and he started his earthly ministry. He was about to get to work, okay? Now listen, Jesus has always been 100% God, 100% man. So to say that Jesus just got to work at age 30 is kind of misleading. The human side of Jesus got to work at age 30. The other side, the God side of Jesus was the creator of all things. It says that in the book of John. All things were created through Jesus. He is the creator God, but his earthly ministry started at age 30. Now, if Jesus was perfect, why in the heck did he need to get baptized? What's the point of that? Well, the point is, is virtually all of Jesus's ministry was to set the example of what God wants out of us, to tell us how to live, what is right and wrong, and to show us how to live those things out. So Jesus didn't need to be baptized, but Jesus wanted to model for us obedience to God and humility. So he goes up to John and John says, you're God in the flesh, I can't baptize you. And Jesus says, no, 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 this is what God expects out of us. So I'm gonna humble myself, let you baptize me, and I'm gonna be obedient to God. And then John says, okay, I get it, right? So I, I like how it says he allowed him to get baptized, right? So John allows Jesus to get baptized. So what we see in the baptism of Jesus is we see all three parts of God kind of manifested, if you will. So what this is, is it's called the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. And that word Trinity is not a biblical word. You can search this entire Bible and the word Trinity is not in there. What Trinity means though is tri-unity, that we worship one God, that's called monotheism, one God, but our one God is manifested in three persons. Now, that's impossible to understand. It doesn't make sense to us. And that's okay, guys. If anyone ever tries to tell you that they have the Holy Trinity figured out, they're probably a cult, right? So they don't. So some aspects of God are outside of our comprehension. And that's what makes God, God. In fact, in the book of Revelation in chapter four, it says that all day long, right, that these angels are going around God while he's on the throne, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. And that word holy can be translated as incomprehensible. So what that means is these angels that fly around for Lord knows how long, literally, right, Lord knows how long, flying around God, they still look at God in amazement, saying incomprehensible. So that leads me to believe that for eternity, we'll be learning more and more and more about our Savior. And that shows just how extraordinary he is. So these three different manifestations of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, in Jesus' baptism, we see all three of them working in unique ways. We see that the Father encourages the Son. We see that the Holy Spirit comes upon the Son and empowers him not only to go out and teach the message for the next three years, but to have the power to climb up on a cross and be crucified to forgive our sins. So we see all three parts of, of, of the triune God, the Trinity, working and starting to work in the baptism of Jesus. And then as Jesus goes down, right, he comes back up, the Holy Spirit comes down, it says the sky opens up and they heard an audible voice of God who said, this is my dearly beloved son that I'm well pleased with. 
Here's maybe the most beautiful thing about our relationship with God and quite honestly, probably the hardest thing that I have absorbing and, and, and living out. From the very creation of humanity, Adam and Eve, we see this father side of God, right? That he walked around in the garden with Adam and Eve. He just loved to be with them. From Abraham to David and Solomon, and man, David blows my mind. This guy did some of the worst things in the Bible. This guy committed adultery. He had someone murdered. And the Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart. But God loved David. Jesus is called the son of David. You have Solomon. You have Mary and Joseph, this young couple that was probably terrified. You have Mary Magdalene, who is a whore, but redeemed by Jesus and one of the most influential leaders of her time. You have Peter that denied Christ three times, but God gives him the keys to the kingdom. You have John that, according to his own gospel, was the, the beloved disciple, but he was the only one at the foot of the cross, boiled alive, but he lived through it, thrown to a deserted island, but God was with him, gave him the book of Revelation. We have Paul, who wrote 70% of the New Testament, who was a murderer. And then all the way up to Jesus, we see this father side of God. These are my children. These are my children. He loves us. And this relationship that we see between Jesus and the Father in chapter three, where the sky opens up and we hear the voice of God say, that's my son. This is the kind of relationship that God wants to have with every single person in this room. Listen, here's why I struggle. Here's why I struggle. Me, I'm just opening up myself and letting you see inside me. I have a father that hasn't spoken to me 14 of the 40 years that I've been alive. 14. He disowned me when I was 17 years old. And he hasn't really had much to do with me since. Listen, guys, and I'm being serious. Don't, don't come up after me and, you know, after service and be like, I'm going to call your dad for you. But it's a little bit more complicated than sending a text. Or it's, 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 there's a long history there. So I, I appreciate your concerns there, but it doesn't help me when people come up and, and say things like that. But listen, I'm telling you all that to say, when I read parts like this about a heavenly father, I don't know if anyone else in the room has dad issues besides me. But what I do is I take all those dad scars that I apply to my earthly father, and I have a tendency to turn the words towards my heavenly father. So whenever I read about grace, it's hard for me to accept grace. Whenever I hear about this love, that God has for me. Let me tell you about the love of God for us. Do you know that God knows every single evil thing you've ever done, are doing, and will ever do, and he still loves you? Imagine if we knew every time someone was gonna stab us in the back or treat us poorly, we would get as far away from that person as possible, and God just wants to continually draw closer to us, knowing everything evil we've ever thought, felt, done, or will do. The love of God is almost incomprehensible to me. I don't understand it. And what that leads into is I don't know if anyone else in this room feels like this, but you ask the question, God, how do you see me? How do you look at me when you look down and see Corey Trimble or when you look down and see anyone sitting in this room? God, how do you feel about me? Now listen, I'm gonna tell you one of the most simplistic things you will ever hear in a church, but it's the most important thing you'll ever hear in a church. Simply that God loves you. Listen, listen, if you ever watch any documentaries, let's say, because I'm a dork, about the planet Jupiter, they're, they're out there. If you ever wanted to watch a documentary on, on Jupiter, 
Jupiter's a couple thousand times bigger than our Earth. If you look at some of the Cassini and the Voyager mission images, these high-definition images of the surface, there is really no surface, but the surface of Jupiter, it looks like this never-ending oil painting. It is gorgeous. It looks beautiful. It looks like something that an artist would come up with in a studio. And it is this huge, massive planet. It's so big and there's so much radiation and gravity of this planet that they actually believe the solar system was constructed because of Jupiter, not because of the sun. Look at how powerful and how large that is. But do you know what? That's not the pinnacle of God's power in creation. When you look at the billions of different kinds of animals on planet Earth, when you look at the typography and the geography of the Earth and you see how beautiful different parts of the Earth are and the the vastness of the oceans and the complexity of all the things that he has created, that is not the pinnacle of God's creation. Do you know what is? You. You are the only thing that has ever been created that is made to look like God. It says in the Word that we are made in his image. Not only that, we're the only things ever created that has the breath of God in us. You're the only thing made to be eternal besides God himself. You're it. How does God see you? He sees you as the ultimate masterpiece of his creation. He sees you as someone that he loves so much. He sees you. This is why I get so frustrated that people don't take this more seriously. The God of the universe loved us so much that the book of Romans says, even while we were sinners, he sent his only son to be nailed to a hunk of wood. And that is Roman soldiers were gambling over what clothes he had left. Jesus looks up to the father and says, father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. God has a love for you in this room that even with the most eloquent of words, I can't even begin to explain the depth of feeling and emotion and love that God has for you. Now listen, that's wonderful news, but there's a caveat, and the caveat is this. I believe, I personally believe, that through God's Son, He has opened up the door for anyone that will have Him that he has opened up the door. It doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter what's been done to you. doesn't matter the evil that has run through your mind and maybe even the evil you have acted upon in this life, that if we will humble ourselves, listen, and trade and shed the identities of this world, if we will be willing to lay down the identities that this world says that we should want, If we will lay down the identity of, I am who I have sex with. I am uh, how much money is in my bank account. I am the color of my skin or the nation I was born in. That is not the whole of who you are. That is not your identity. That is what the world impresses on you to find valuable. It's your sexual preference. It's your money. It's your education. It's your looks. It's your skin color. And they push these identities on us. And all we have found is that finding our identity in those things has not brought us purpose. They they have not brought us joy. They have not brought us fulfillment. And so God says, lay down those identities and pick up an eternal identity that you are my child. You are my daughter. You are my son. I know you've done all that evil, but if you will lay that life down, I will show you what it truly means to live. This is why I get so angry when we talk about real things and people say, I don't want to hear that. That's too deep. 
This is the connection of God and humanity. Yes, it's deep. Yes, it's important. Yes, it's worth yelling about and hopefully getting someone's attention in this room. That where we find our value in this world will not give us hope. We have to shed that identity for a greater identity. That we are made in the image of the only God. That we are loved beautifully and brilliantly and deeply by that God. But we have to be willing to let go of this world. We have to be willing to let go. Hold, hold on. There was a man. There was a man that had it all by his culture standards. He was educated. He was powerful. When he said, go out and do this, people went out and did that. More than likely, he was affluential because his occupation would have lent him to, to much money. And this young man had, had gotten a lot of power. It says in the book of Acts in chapter 7, the first person that was ever martyred for their faith, a man named Stephen. It said that as they were throwing rocks, killing this man, Stephen, it said that the people handed their coats to this young, influential, affluential, educated man, a young man named Saul. Well, one day Saul was going from town to town using his power, his influence, his education to kill other believers of Jesus. He was going out, and one day Jesus himself showed up and knocked Saul on his butt. And paraphrasing, Jesus essentially said, I want you to drop this identity. I want you to drop your identity and your education and your power and your influence and your violence and your strength, and I have a new identity for you. Of course, now we know him as the Apostle Paul, right? And the Apostle Paul wrote, in my opinion, the four most important words in the entire Bible. Paul simply said this. He says, for I am persuaded. I am convinced. What in the world was this man convinced about? He was convinced that nothing in heaven or hell, nothing that was created, Nothing in the past, in the present, or in the future, nothing could rob his identity in God. Nothing could separate him from the love that Jesus Christ had for him. Despite the awful things he had done, despite the abuse, the murder, the slander, the evil that he had perpetrated, there was nothing that could separate him from the love of God. Listen, the reason why more of us in this room don't live the way that God wants us to live, the reason why more of us in this room don't turn away from the filth, and like the Bible says, we're like dogs that return to our own vomit, the reason why we don't turn from the porn and the lust and the cheating and the lying and the stealing and the materialism and the popularity, the reason we don't turn from that is because if we get to the core of it, we are not convinced we are not persuaded that the greatest thing we will ever have is the love of God. We are not persuaded. But let me tell you this, guys. If you will truly get it in your heart and truly get it in your mind that you are persuaded that nothing can tear you from the love of God, God will absolutely turn your life around. He'll fix marriages. He'll restore relationships. He'll forgive even the most atrocious things you've ever done. He'll restore you, and he will look down on us and say, that's my daughter. 
I am really proud of her. That is my son who brings me great joy. But we must be convinced. We must be convinced that there is a creator God that looks down on his creation and says, I want that more than anything else. I want to be with them more than anything else. I love them more than anything else. Someone in this room has been abused. And I need to tell you, I'm so sorry that that has happened to you, but that's not your identity. Your identity is not victim. Listen, some of you have been the abuser. And I want to tell you that your past is not your identity. I want to tell you that the evil things you've done, that's not who you are. It's not who you're intended to be. There are some of you in here who've done such evil things. You've been so confused. You've been so selfish. That is not what God wants for you. God wants us to lay down those identities that will only let us down and pick up something that is eternal, that has substance. And it begins with being convinced that God loves me and he loves you. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Maybe one of the most sobering and scary passages in the Bible. There's a part that Jesus is talking and someone asked him about, what is the end going to look like? And Jesus said, it's going to be a lot like the days of Noah. He said, people are going to be eating, drinking, getting married, just kind of doing their thing. And then one day, the bottom's going to fall out. I get so frustrated because we get so wrapped up in ourselves. Me too, guys, me too. We get so wrapped up in the things we're doing, distractions. We get so wrapped up in things we have or don't have. And the whole time we have the eternal creator God on our heels, knocking on the doors of our heart, the Bible says, saying, please, please open. Please let me in and I will give you something. Just like Jesus at the woman at the well, he doesn't condemn the woman. He doesn't make the woman feel like trash. But he asks this woman, lay down what you thought is, is sustaining you and take up something that's alive. Take up something that will permanently fix you. There's so many of us in this room that are looking for some kind of affirmation we're looking for someone to accept us. We're looking for love. We're looking for, for some kind of validation. And the God that made us is saying, I'm here. I want to validate you. I want to affirm you. I want to be with you. I want a relationship with you. And yet we keep looking for things that just keep leaving us flat.
If you're in this room and you don't know God, if you don't know God, I, I, I beg you, I implore you, up here on my right, your left, Pastor Mike is up here. If you have any questions, if you're tired in this room, if you feel like you keep running in circles, please come up here and talk to Pastor Mike. He would love to talk with you, help you however we can. If you're in this room and you need prayer, there's men and women on both sides of the stage. They'd love to pray with you. The last thing is we have communion all the way around this room. Listen to me as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. If what has been done to you has defined you to this point, let it go. Let it go. Drop that identity and pick up a better identity. If you have committed atrocious things and your shame and your guilt and your mistakes has been your identity, it's time to let it go. Maybe you need to call some people and get some forgiveness, but today you have the opportunity to have God forgive you. Let's drop that identity. If you have found more joy in your sex, sexuality, heterosexuality, homosexuality, whatever, if you have found more of an identity in that, I ask you to drop that for the sake of Christ. If your hope has been in your color of your skin or how much money you have in the bank, I want to implore you, drop that identity today. Ask God to forgive you that you found your identity in something other than him. And we can take communion. We can be reminded that we are no longer slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female. The Bible says we are all one under Jesus Christ. We can take the body and blood of Jesus and be reminded that we are made in his image, that he loves us, that he sent his only son to die a vicious, horrible, violent death for us, that we can be brought into the family. Father, I love you. God, forgive me for my bad attitude today. God, forgive me that I, if I spoke out of turn anyway, but God, Lord, I pray that even even through my fumbling in the dark, Lord, today, that maybe something that came out of my mouth resonates with someone in this room. That maybe someone in this room will drop the temporal identities that we carry and pick up an eternal identity in you. Father, I love you, God, and I know you love us. I pray that the people in this room feel your love today, God. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. Keep your hand on my brothers and sisters in this room, God, until we meet again, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you.